Hi, and welcome back to Outward. I'm Brandon Tinsley, the associate editor at New American, a contributing writer at Pacific Standard Magazine. And I'm currently on a strict diet of Robin Bops as I prepare for a concert this month. I'm Brian Lauder, editor of Outward, and while I love making and eating desserts, I'm going to have to pass on a serving of silky nutmeg ganache. I'm Christina Cotarucci, a staff writer at Slate and host of The Waves, Slate's podcast about women and gender. And I recently learned that if you get served the check when you're out to dinner, your server has decided that you of the couple are the top. This month, our theme on the podcast is town and country. For almost as long as gay and queer have been conceptualized as identities and not just categories of sexual behaviors, the narrative around LGBTQ communities has revolved around cities. So on this episode, we're going to talk about how that urban centricity came to be, how cities helped form expectations of queer life, why the stereotype of the urban gay has proved remarkably persistent, how queer people decide where to make their homes, and why LGBT life thrives in some of the most outwardly unlikely places. To help us unpack some of these questions, we're going to talk to author Hugh Ryan, who studied gay communities in Brooklyn in the 19th and early 20th century, about how cities have provided records of some of these historical queer lives. Then we'll chat with the Daily Beast's Samantha Allen, who has written a new book about LGBTQ life in red states. That's two authors, so y'all are going to get read. We'll also answer a listener's questions about building queer community in rural areas. But first, we're going to kick things off with our March edition of Pride and Provocations. Uh, Brandon, what do you have for us this month? I am feeling pride this Aww. month, per usual. Uh, so I recently read this interview that the Globe and Mail did with Ellen Page about uh, this new Netflix show called The Umbrella Academy. I don't know if you've Which seen I it. Which I love. Oh, oh yeah. you've seen it? Okay, I just great. started I just started it, it like oh this my God. weekend. Okay, no spoilers. Don't worry. I'm not sure if okay. her character is gay, but she there's one episode where she does an extremely gay dance. Yes. The first episode. I said it. I was like, look at that oh, lesbian yeah, dance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I think we're alone now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Continue, um, sorry. Yeah, and so I think the show itself is just, it's its really great. It's lots of fun. I binge-watched it in like a few weekends ago when I was supposed to be finishing a story. Um, and so y'all know the plot, but for our listeners who don't, um, I just pulled up the Wikipedia plot, and it revolves around a dysfunctional family of adopted sibling superheroes who reunite to solve the mystery of their father's death and the threat of an impending apocalypse. So I feel like it's, you know, it's a pretty absurd show. Some people who I think were a little less enthusiastic um, compared it to like X-Men, you know, other sort of queer coded shows that deal with being different and feeling isolated and not fitting in. And, um, you know, what do you do about that? Um, But I think the thing that I really liked about uh, The Umbrella Academy is how the show seems like it's much more concerned with the character's um, interiority um, as opposed to sort of like just fighting off bad guys who are trying to take over the world and things like that. And Ellen Page got at that in the interview that she did, um, where she's talking about how how she convinced um, the show to let her essentially reinterpret the character in a way that she felt was true to herself as an actress. Mm, um, because hence the dancing yeah. and the button-up <laughs> no, shirts but actually, buttoned all yeah. the way to the top. <laughs> well, because apparently in the original comic, her character was much more sort of like, I don't know, like pin-up sort of attractive. I'm rolling my eyes. You yes, can't hear yeah. it. <laughs> I can feel it, though. Um, and so she said in like a phone call, she said, I said, just so you know, I would need to be able to to decide how I want to dress. Pedro called in a phone interview this week. He said, of course, I want you to be careful. She makes a small amazed noise. In my experience, that's unheard of. 
On other projects, I've had so many horrible, misogynistic, homophobic debates about what I'm going to wear. TV and film can be so binary and gendered. To be able to have women in stories who exist in the way I do, that may sound small or insignificant, but it's major for me. Um, And so, yeah, like that's the specific thing that she was talking about making the change to was like, yeah, her wardrobe, something much more muted, much more sort of understated. But she felt like that was just truer to her and how she was actually reading the character. Um, So I would tell you, Brian and Christina, to see the show, but you're already doing that. So (laughs) but let me know your thoughts once you're done. Absolutely. Um, I'm loving it so, so far. Well, I will go next, if that's all right. Uh, I have a pride as well, and it's also television related. Uh, I guess it's winter because we're all like binging. (laughs) So the other two, uh, I don't know if you guys, do you guys know the show on Comedy Central? No. I've heard of it. I haven't seen it. So it's it's like a a dramedy producer, Daniel. Tell What is it? It's like a genre wise. I don't even know what to call it. Yeah, it's, I I would say it's just honestly a straight comedy. Straight comedy, yeah. Like a straight people comedy no it's, no, not it's the gayest show on right now wow. yeah there's a like a there's like a justin bieber type uh young star that comes out of nowhere and his and his two siblings are older and you know dealing with this sudden fame in their family and their own aspirations and all of that but the the thing i wanted to call out as a pride is that there is an episode um uh, uh, i think it's maybe the third or fourth episode where um, the the up and coming star writes a song about his gay brother. Could we hear a clip of that, please? Oh, 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 oh. My brother's brave. My brother's wise. My brother doesn't like girls. He likes guys. He kisses men. That turns him on And if you think that's gross Well then I think you're wrong Cause I think it's cool My brother's gay So he sings that song And then his gay brother becomes Like sort of a celebrity for like a moment um, online and they uh, there's like a, the management company that's dealing with the kid like traces the evolution of this uh, of this song and popularity and my favorite part and the and sort of the, the core of my pride here is that uh, Wanda Sykes is the main um, uh, sort of executive that's over it and at some point in the life cycle of this of this internet fame uh, they say we've reached the camp stage <laughs> <laughs> like you've become not like seriously loved, but like loved in the way that gay people like love something, but also hated at the same time. Um, and I've never heard like camp explained in quite that way on television before. And I sort of screamed and it was wonderful and true. Um, and so uh, the the minds behind the show are, are, are queer and it's, it's very smart and funny and uh, relatable. So I h- highly recommend uh, the other two. So yeah, that is my pride. Good job show. Uh, watch it. Christina. I am provoked this month. Oh my God. Typical woman, (laughs) angry at everything. (laughs) So I'm provoked by the cover story in the March issue of Vanity Fair. It's Mm. Miley Cyrus Mm. on the cover. She's just a well of provocation for me. (laughs) So Miley Cyrus, pop star, she's 26, uh, recently married to Liam Hemsworth, who's not the flagship Hemsworth, as (laughs) slate writer Heather Schwedell would say. That's Chris. But, you know, Liam is a Hemsworth in his own right. So uh, Miley in the piece via interview and also some excerpts from maybe her diary 
goes into a really bizarre discussion of uh, her queerness in her, quote unquote, hetero relationship. And she says, uh, we're redefining, she and Liam Hemsworth, we're redefining, to be fucking frank, what it looks like for someone that's a queer person like myself to be in a hetero relationship. Which, first of all, is there a standard for what it looks like for a queer person to be in a hetero relationship? And then also, are you really redefining what that looks like? It kind of seems like maybe that's what it looks like, the way it looks like for you, other than the fact that you're both famous. She also says um, that in this new generation, uh, relationships and partnerships don't have so much to do with sexuality or gender. Sex is actually a small part, and gender is a very small, almost irrelevant part of relationships. Like, maybe for some people, but, like, please don't label your entire generation (laughs) as people who think sex is a very small part of relationships and gender (laughs) is irrelevant. Like, really, Liam Hemsworth gender has nothing to do with why you like him. Um, It's just, like, it triggered the shit out of me. It almost felt like it was, um, like, engineered in a lab to Mm. provoke me because it felt like she's like protesting too much like mm-hmm. okay we get it like you're in a relationship with a man like a cis guy who's like a hot famous just like man's man cool like you're still by mm-hmm. you know we get it like no one's questioning that but you're making this argument that like you're, you're responding to an argument that's not there you right. know what i mean yeah. she's just sort of like making up or maybe is overly conscious of she's projecting her own mm-hmm. insecurities about this relationship she's in so Count me provoked for the month of March. Yeah, it sounds like nothing's being reinvented there. So Yeah. She also says, I wore a dress on my wedding day because I felt like it. I straightened my hair because I felt like it. But that doesn't make (laughs) me some instantly polite hetero lady. P.S. Straight women are badass too. Like, straight women did not need that shout out from you. And like, also every other woman who has straightened their hair and wore a dress on their wedding day did so because they felt like it. And also like feeling like it. Can also be socially constructed mm-hmm. and like affected by expectations. So, uh, thanks, uh, Miley, for the feelings. I'm provoked too. I don't like that. Yeah, but you know what? I'm not provoked by <laughs> what I'm proud of <laughs> is everyone who rated and reviewed our show. I'm after proud of we that made, too. Mm-hmm. We made that request last time. Thank you guys so much. It was so great to see our listeners all up in the comments. And please know that it really does help us to get more ears where we can continue to advance the gay agenda, which is what we're all here to do. So if you haven't written reviewed yet, please do that. Keep it up. Let your friends know. And we really, really, really appreciate it. So let's dive into the discussion. As Christina mentioned, our theme is town and country. And one question I have for y'all, and to me it seemed maybe a little deceptively straightforward, but as I tried to think through it, it was actually really tough to pin it down. Um, But where does gayness live? And what does it look like beyond big cities? Well, I think I feel like that big question deserves kind of like a big answer, which is like, what do we mean by Mm -hmm. gayness? So if we mean the existence of individual gay or queer people in the world, they can live anywhere. Yeah, Um, we are everywhere, TM. mm -hmm. We are everywhere, TM. But if you mean like a sort of cultural gayness or a gay community 
that that has some sort of existence like beyond the individual then that becomes more complicated because you need you know more than one uh and m- many more than one probably and so that's when uh cities become sort of a natural place to look for it i think yeah i i think the internet probably marks a an inflection point in the way queerness as an identity develops because um, or maybe not even just the internet, but you know, the printing press or like, (laughs) I don't know, like the distribution of zines and um, the, the distribution of culture in general, where I don't think it's as necessary now as it was in the time that, for instance, Hugh Ryan writes about um, who we're interviewing later in this episode, where really People who are growing up in small towns might not know anyone else who shares their desires, and it's not until a vaudeville show comes to their town or until they go to a city that they realize this can actually be a community or like a thing that we are and not necessarily just a a desire I experience. And so I don't think cities are as essential for formulating the notion of a queer identity now, but to have a thriving culture that's actually separate from the straight culture of wherever you are, um, you know, not just like, oh, we are just like you, except for we have sex with different kinds of people. You need some sort of critical mass to create place-specific and culture-specific queer fashion and art and, uh, you know, music and party scenes and local luminaries. And and I think you also need to have enough people for subcultures to develop, you know, variety and choice need like space and density to flourish. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I initially was thinking, you know, in terms of like, well, like if you're not in um, a city, then you won't have, you know, sort of cultural institutions like, you know, well, a buffet of like bars and clubs and professional associations and gayborhoods and things like that. Um, and then I started thinking, well, like that's a very sort of city centric way to um, grapple with, you know, how do queer people in a particular community um, actually communicate and engage with each other? And so I don't know if y'all have seen um, the Gospel of Eureka. It's this documentary that came out last year, and it's specifically looking at um, the town of Eureka Springs, uh, Arkansas. And so it made me think about. Um, you know, you might not have this sort of um, robust offering of things that we often think of in big cities, but it can, that sort of community and bonding can, you know, appear in different ways, right? It can be in the sort of conversations that people have. It can be in the sort of, um, I don't know, just the day-to-day sort of mingling of people who are queer, who aren't queer. It could be in churches. It can be in these places where uh, we might actually take it for granted that like these aren't these don't have to be staples of queerness, but that was, you know, that might be a more extreme example. Yes, I I saw that film and loved it very much, um, and, I, and I think it does show that yeah, that you can have sort of gay with with a certain mass of people anyway, mm-hmm. and even in a smaller place like that, you can have uh, gay um, community sort of expressions happening. You know, but I think it does still like one of the things that, that movie does center on is uh, it, there is a gay bar in the town mm-hmm. um, that seems to be kind of a hub. And so, 
you know, I do wonder if without that place that tr- is like the, the, as far as you could tell from the movie, at least like the only totally separate queer space, mm-hmm. like without that, I wonder how organized things, you know, that community might feel um, if you were only able to sort of meet in the ch- churches where you're blended with other people, right. Or in other sort of community spaces. Um, it seems important to, to me to have that at least one, like, like home base um and that you know i don't know that it has to be a nightclub like yeah. there's plenty of people who don't right. like nightclubs and I, so i think we should try to think more broadly than that but i just have a hard time imagining sustaining like a real queer community uh sense like in a place without something like that and so i think it, i think it's kind of crucial that they exist i also uh this topic made me think of a book I read last year. Um, it's called True Sex, The Lives of Trans Men at the Turn of the 20th Century. It's by Emily Skidmore, an incredibly fascinating book that looks at um, trans masculine people. She writes a lot about, you know, why she does and doesn't call them trans men. But a lot of the the people who she profiles in the book, largely using archival newspaper reports of like somebody who died and they were found out upon death um, that they, you know, that they were trans. She writes that a lot of these folks stayed in small towns and felt they were accepted in, in their small towns, even more so than they were in cities because they had neighborly connections with people. So these were people who knew them maybe since they um you know, were growing up or maybe they moved there as a young adult or or an established adult. And everyone kind of knew what was going on, you know, that they were trans, um, but they didn't say anything. Or if they did, it was it wasn't in a hostile fashion. It was like, well, you know, Bob always gives you a pound of flour when you need it or like, you know, Joe runs a great hardware <laughs> store and, and we need that in this town. And mm-hmm. he's an upstanding businessman. And look, his wife is great, too. Whereas in cities, there was less of that depth of roots and um, dependability or, yeah, dependence, um, links of dependence. So people were less likely to have your back when, when, you know, the person who was coming to get you from your previous location because they found out that you had been, quote unquote, deceiving them. Um, you know, they were they would say, you know, like, don't come around here trying to make trouble with Joe. We love Joe. Yeah, I think that's such a great point because, you know, I think one of the one of the elements of the like get to the city mythology that that we all are familiar with is like the reason part of the reason you do that is to get away from all those connections, right? Yeah. So if you're from a small small place uh and you realize that you're different in one way or another, getting away uh to a place where you can be anonymous um and sort of re- build your life from scratch mm-hmm. is like is like this is 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 preferable. It's like a way of of escaping some kind of um, surveillance. Um, but clearly, like there are people for whom that's not a problem, and they're willing to like you know deal with those connections and actually find even find strength um, in those connections. And you know, I I feel like as someone who personally like migrated from a small place to to New York, like. I don't entirely understand that um, and it, it doesn't appeal to me, but like clearly that is another mode of like queer life building that's like possible. And I think we definitely don't uh, listen to it enough or, mm-hmm. and, and sort of like honor it enough because it it uh, it does happen and it's happened for quite a long time and um, maybe is happening more now. Yeah. And like, I feel like part of that mythology is sort of a 
reluctance um, to not talk about the ways that, um, you know, the various sort of uh, bigotry or segregation um, that exists in these smaller towns, you know, it, it replicates, right? That who's to say that it, that isn't transported with you when you might move to a city? And that's one of the things that um, in the article that you shared with us, Brian, Cath uh, Weston's uh, Get Thee to a Big City um, is how people um, go about constructing their gayness as a community signifier. Um, how do they even know that it exists? Um, and then how do they sort of, how does that construction influence where they live? Um, and how it's it seems beautiful and great. It's like going to Oz um, and then you get there and then you're kind of like, holy shit, like I was facing, you know, uh, racism back home or, you know, I, you know, there weren't really spaces for queer women back home. And now in San Francisco, I'm finding that same struggle exists. Um, you see so, the man behind the curtain. Exactly. It's your analogy. Well, I even thought about that when I like moved to D.C., right, where I often think that when people talk about uh, gay D.C., I often think gay D.C., actually means more sort of like gay white DC and gay white male DC um, as opposed to um, not to say that these other that subcultures other forms of queerness don't exist in DC but I think when people are sort of painting in um, broad strokes about what life what gay DC life is like um, we tend to skew toward the same sort of normalization um, of who gets the narrative as happens and you know outside of these big cities as well. Yeah, and it sort of assumes that that you know the LGBT part of your identity is the most salient part of your identity mm-hmm. wherever you are. Um and for some people that is definitely true and for a lot of people I think it's not. And cities could also be important for queer people to come and see what they're not like that mm-hmm. you know this community that I thought was going to be representative of me or that I would that, you know, this would be my chosen family actually doesn't and isn't. Yeah. And like one thing I'm interested in is um, why did we decide to sort of start building, you know, our young adult lives um, in the cities <laughs> where we are? What makes these cities um, places that we enjoy being gay in? So when I thought about it, you know, I thought about things that were sort of, you know, the difference between what makes the city um, great to be gay in versus what makes it possible. Employment protection or healthcare that you could use for your same-sex partner, trans uh, healthcare protections, um, employment protection generally. Like I feel like those are things where those are non-negotiable. Um, so I'm just like, I, I would need those things. But you know, the sorts of things that make it great, which are more subjective, I think, are the sorts of things that I think give more sort of queer license. Um, they can be having cinemas. They could be having indie cinemas where, you know, I can go and see Moonlight or something, whereas, you know, the theater um, background from in South Carolina, like, we would always kind of joke in my family, like, oh, they're not playing the black movies. Um, <laughs> we need to go to, like, a different town <laughs> to see that movie or wait for it to, like, come on pay-per-view or something. Um, and it was the same with uh, with queer cinema as well. Um, but, you know, having cinemas, having art galleries, even having the spaces that, you know, just sort of stereotypically, historically um, are a little bit more, they embrace um, queer people more, but those are the sorts of things that make it just even fun um, to be in. But what are y'all, what, what is it for y'all? I mean, when I think about, I've been in New York for, gosh, like 13 years now. Um, and so when I think about this question, it's more like what keeps me here? Like, mm. like 
because I am as I get as I get older, <laughs> um, I'm itching a little bit to have you know to have like a garden. I don't know, you know, I, I, like I, I see a different phase of my life to coming. grow your own mint for your mint juleps. Exactly <laughs> to grow my herbs, and you know, I don't know, like to actually reclaim some of the stuff that I grew up with mm-hmm. growing up in the South. But at the same time, it's like the, the thing that you know uh, holds me back a little bit is especially in a city like New York, just the constant availability of like an infinity different modes of queerness. Mm -hmm. Not that I necessarily participate in all of those like any given weekend, but like the idea that there are like really interesting like, you know, art exhibits happening and like a a slew of different kinds of nightlife events and dance parties, just like all of that stuff that as sort of a brainy, like oriented queer, like it's, it is that stuff will not exist in smaller places. Um, not, not as much. I'm like Brian where I've been here for a long enough time that when I think about what keeps me here, it's, if I didn't have, certainly DC is not as flush with queer culture as New York, but if there wasn't, I feel like I have a uh, a bar below which I I can't abide a lack of queer culture. Mm-hmm. So like there needs to be at least, you know, one bar or party where I really feel like this is me. And in my case, I it's like pretty much the one that I run, which is a, a total <laughs> privilege to be able to be like, you know what, I'm going to make a space that like make my ideal space. Mm-hmm. And then as long as I'm yeah. here, it will exist. And I can be a part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also the the individual people that I know here. And my queer community here is very people-specific. And I don't think we, you know, we can make our own community happen. If I moved somewhere else that maybe had more queer people in it, um, it still might not feel as rich and feel the same to me. I might be able to make it that way, but um, certainly not at first. I think also I there there was definitely a point it's hilarious to think about this now cuz I had only been out in DC for a couple of years but I was like I've been through all the lesbians in DC <laughs> you know like I need a place with more <laughs> and that like clearly wasn't true and also people move in and out all the, time, <laughs> the nature of cities um in fact in the um get thee to the big city piece that Brian so wonderfully brought to our attention mm-hmm. um the author talks a lot about cities as a place where people come to from rural and suburban areas and then leave from Mm -hmm. and bring that culture back or transform that culture when they Mm -hmm. go elsewhere. Um, It's like going to like collect intel um, and then bring it back to their... Yeah, and take back the good parts and leave the bad Mm -hmm. parts um, and hopefully influence the culture there with the good parts and not the bad parts of of the places they came from. So that's about it for our discussion. Um, Brian, why don't you lead us in our conversation with Hugh? Happy to. All right, we're so excited to be in the studio today with Hugh Ryan. Hugh is a queer writer and outward contributor, museum curator and historian, and he's got a wonderful new book out this month from St. Martin's Press called When Brooklyn Was Queer. He's here today to help us think about the role cities like Brooklyn played in the early formation of gay communities and even queer identity itself. Welcome, Hugh. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm really excited. Thank you for being here. Yeah. 
Um, so where we are right now in downtown Brooklyn is walking distance from Brooklyn Heights, Vinegar Hill, and the old Brooklyn Navy Yard. It's sort of in, it's like a semicircle around us. Uh, this area of the waterfront is central to queer life at the start of your book, uh, which begins in the mid-1850s. Um, and it was particularly important to the first major queer figure that you cover, Walt Whitman. Um, can you tell us what queer Brooklyn was like in his day? So... In the 1820s, um, the Erie Canal opened up, right? And that changes Brooklyn drastically. Brooklyn goes from being this, like, sleepy, cute little town on the outskirts of Manhattan to being a major port city. Um, by the 1850s, when Walt Whitman is active in Brooklyn, New York City as a whole is moving something like tonnages greater than Baltimore, Boston, and New Orleans combined, right? It's the most important shipping location in the world. And that makes queer Brooklyn possible in a lot of ways because it provides jobs mm. and density and urban privacy and things that get you away from your family and the communities you grew up in. And so in Walt Whitman's time, there weren't really words for these things, right? Homosexuality itself wasn't even a word yet. That doesn't get created until the 1860s in Germany. They really didn't have ways to talk about these kinds of things. Your sexuality, as much as sexuality existed, because even that wasn't really a concept, was a function of your gender identity. Mm -hmm. And so the important thing about Walt Whitman is not just that he has these desires for other men. And incredible lists that he kept of all of his (laughs) sexual conquests. Pages upon pages (laughs) of these men that he met on the waterfront, right? Mm -hmm. Where they're working and they're traveling and they're coming to visit. and, And But the important thing is that he manages to figure out like, okay, I desire other men. I have a pretty normative gender presentation, you know, not that he would use any of these words, but he figures this out and he's like, there are other men like me and we need a way to talk about ourselves. Mm -hmm. And Brooklyn enables him to meet those men and start coming up with those words. And in Leaves of Grass, which he publishes right here in Brooklyn Heights, the Rome Brothers print shop, 1855, supposedly on July 4th, but there's some (laughs) disagreement about that. He writes these words in, things like camarados for the men who love as he himself is capable of loving and adhesiveness for their love. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. That's beautiful. I want to pick up on one thing that you just mentioned, which is jobs. And I think throughout the book, you talk about uh, how you sort of give an economic analysis to like queer identity, right? Like queerness can exist where people, queer people or proto-queer people can find work. Um, Can you talk a little bit more about that? Absolutely. Uh, You know, it's really important to actually be able to make a living for oneself, particularly in early queer history, because oftentimes that was how you were able to then explore a queer life, right? Mm -hmm. So you needed money. You needed to survive. And on the waterfront, there were lots of jobs that for one reason or another were particularly available to or interesting for queer people. So in my book, I I chronicle five different categories of jobs. Sailors, right? They're always this sign of getting escape from a small town. And (laughs) they're on these single sex journeys all the time. And those cute outfits. Yeah, I was going to say the tight uniforms. (laughs) And going back even into the mid-1800s, people recognize that sailors are particularly attractive to other men. Like this is... (laughs) Even before homosexuality is a thing, people know sailors are queer. (laughs) So you've got sailors, you've got sex workers, right? And often those are the same people, um, or at least they're willing to sort of be the same people. Mm -hmm. Artists, everything from painters to set designers to writers. writers. Uh, Entertainers, which are more like performers, you know, anything from a musician to a dancer Uh to a drag king. Uh, And female factory workers. And those five groups of people are really where you find this sort of concentrated queer history. Those jobs enable them for a lot of different reasons to live these free lives. And that's also the reason why, as I chronicle in the book, the earliest history we can find 
really starts with white men mm. because those are the people who have the most economic freedom, right? They're the first people who are able to create these lives in ways that we are then able to see them historically. Because, of course, queer desires have existed forever. We just maybe can't find them in the history records. Yeah. And when you're talking about the sort of migration that that cities enable where people might come from towns where they're tightly circumscribed by their families and communities and social expectations, what would let a person who wants to escape that and who might be exploring, you know, same-sex desires, um, how do they know about cities and how do they know that they could be a vaudeville performer or something in the 1850s? Well, actually, vaudeville is one of the ways they know, right? Vaudeville uh, often comes out of cities. New York is an epicenter for it. And it brings culture around to the entire country. And in that way, it knits America together, right? It creates this idea of a culture. And in vaudeville, you have characters, stock characters, right? So these are things we're familiar with today, like the drunken Irish paddy. It's mm. offensive, but it also teaches Americans who Americans are, right? Mm. Americans are Irish and Irish are drunks and they're also storytellers and blah, 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 blah. <laughs> the fairy is one of those characters. Mm -hmm. And the fairy helps to bring this around the country, as do newspapers, which report on those variety shows, not only the shows themselves, but the entertainers and true crime stories, which is the other way that all of this kind of spreads throughout the country. But a lot of these people probably came to city mostly looking for work, right? That they heard that there was business there, there was shipping, there was industry. Uh, they might not have necessarily come for queer experiences, but that came along with it. You have this great quote along, along these lines where you say um, uh, that Brooklyn, like many cities, gave queer people a temporary refuge, a place uh, for finding oneself, for finding work, finding love before moving on to another location. So it's almost like you're, you're like capturing this theory of like queer identity where like you come to the city, learn that you're queer or learn that there's like other people like you. And then you go out and like evangelize for that <laughs> elsewhere. I mean, is that like, like a, a dynamic that you were? Hmm. Yeah, 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 exactly. I, I think a little bit that is definitely true. Uh, in Brooklyn, that's specifically true because there are a lot of people who come here for short term yeah. work. Uh, particularly, you get a lot or waves of immigrants, mostly these sort of bachelor subcultures of men who come looking for work at different times. You get the Irish, you get the Italian. Uh, a little bit later, you get Germans, uh, though they tend to come in more full family units. So you mm -hmm. get less of that bachelor subculture and less visible queer history for that reason. And then these guys tend to imagine that they are then going to move home or they're going to move somewhere else. They're going to make their money, make their fortune. And so their sort of temporariness is another thing that enables queerness in cities, right? It's a place where you're like, well, I'm only going to be here for a couple of years. <laughs> what if I get arrested? <laughs> right. So you can try it out. Yeah. Mm -hmm. the, the policing aspect of uh, urbanization and queerness was really interesting to me in your book where uh, you write about, you know, not only did cities enable queer people to find people like them or figure out that queerness was a thing at all, but, uh, you know, that increased visibility also perhaps uh, instigated the the beginning of stricter policing of queer sexuality. And in fact, um, I learned from your book that New York was one of the first states to sort of spell out exactly what sexual crimes were mm -hmm. covered under the the broader idea of like a crime against nature or something. How did the policing of queer sexuality in cities set the stage for 
uh, policing elsewhere. Well, the police and queer sort of work in this um, constant pendulum pattern. It's right. right. Like queerness grows and then the police sort of figure out a way to repress it. And then queerness finds a new way. And then usually there are moral reformers who act or doctors also who act as an in-between. Like before the police are able to really effectively curtail a behavior, they've got these civilian people who are able to move a lot faster. They don't have to change laws. And so they can kind of crack down on these queer practices and kind of push the police to crack down on them more. And that actually gives us all this record keeping, right? So one mm-hmm. of the ways that policing helps us understand queerness historically is as much as they were, you know, dicks to queer people in their time, I now rely on those records to find so much information. The the pendulum effect that you were just describing, like it, it seems like it almost makes me sad. I feel like I, I, maybe this is a weird question, but I feel like when you're doing this research, when you see all these like these periods of flowering of like queer community and creation and then they get tamped down, did that like affect you emotionally? <laughs> yes. Uh, particularly the end of my book, I have yeah. to say I, I joke that it's like the part where everyone commits suicide and burns their letters. And it's not quite that bad. Uh, but the post-war period yeah. is really dark. But the thing, you know, because I am a historian at heart, the thing that made me sad every time was the burning of the letters. You know, all of these people, you'd read these fascinating biographies and you would get to some place like three quarters of the way through and it'd be like, and then she burned her diaries, you know? <sighs> yeah. Or, and then she said she would take her letters and toss them into the sea. Or if they saved their letters themselves, their parents or their estates destroyed them, thinking yeah. they were protecting them. Yeah, And that's where I'm just like, those are these archives that we will never be able to touch again. Well, so given that erasure, I mean, what is, you know, and, and that, that really is like the melancholy note, I think that the book kind of sounds like, what is the one person or story that you uncovered that you're like proudest of being able to kind of rescue and like present to people? Ugh. If you had to choose one, I'm sure they had a lot. to choose one. That's a tough one. I think, um, you know, rescue might not be the, the best term, but there is a, a drag performer, a male impersonator from the late 1800s called Florence Hines. And there's a number of drag performers at that time. It's a big art form at the end of the Victorian era. And Florence Hines was a black woman performing in vaudeville and in variety. And she was, according to all the newspaper accounts I can find, the highest paid female performer of color of her day. Historically, she was incredibly important. She performed in shows, uh, a show called The Creole Show, which was one of the first to present African-American performance, not as this kind of like, we are just showing what they naturally do, Uh you know, on the plantation. Yeah, it's actually showing these are artists who are performers and they Mm -hmm. do incredible things. And so she's in the show. And not only that, but she is the first woman we know of who's played the central interlocutor of a minstrel show. So Mm -hmm. in The Creole Show, she's the master of ceremonies in drag. And that was incredibly important. And that show, a lot of uh, historians of black theatrical performance really mark that as the Mm -hmm. moment when we start to have a black theatrical tradition in America that is grounded in racial stereotypes, but is not racist in the same way that minstrelsy always was. And yet, when I started doing this research, the white performers that she was performing around the same time with, you know, Ella Wesner, women like that, who's also in the book, You can find tons of materials relating to Mm. them, huge archives of information, books that go into their lives, photos. Uh, Ella Wesner herself was actually paid by cigarette and champagne companies to disperse their wares from the stage. They produced marketing (laughs) materials with her face on them. I could find one photo of Florence Hines. Wow. One. And that was it. And no archive devoted to her. I couldn't even figure out exactly when she stopped performing or when she died. I went through a lot of uh, different newspapers. And in, I think it was the Chicago Freeman, I think, maybe the Illinois Freeman. 
can't remember. I'd have to look that up. There are two uh, different stories in the letter section. One says she stopped performing when prohibition became uh, was passed and she became a preacher. And the other one says she was injured in the early 1900s and was permanently incapacitated and left the stage. <laughs> and and you can't find out which is the true story. Nope. Yeah. Later in the same newspaper and like... I think it's like 1924 or something like that. There's a letter from a woman who says, I am her daughter and she died a few months ago and she's buried here in California. Wow. Mm-hmm. So the theme of our episode, you know, we're trying to sort of contrast and explore the formation of queer identities in cities versus, you know, suburbs and rural areas. Um, what role did cities play then for formation of queer identity? And and how has that changed over time to, to the role they play now? I mean, I think that they give opportunity and they give density, right? So you have the opportunity to do things that are not connected to where you came from or your people or your communities of birth, which maybe, you know, a lot of us, I think, need that kind of freedom. I know as a child, I was like, I'm going to come out when I get to college, right? Mm-hmm. That seemed like this freedom. And, and think, where were you growing up? Uh, the suburbs of New York. My parents oh, are okay. from the Bronx and Manhattan, and I grew up in the suburbs, uh, Westchester. And so that was how I imagined it. You know, and I think for a lot of people, it's that way. When do I get away from home? That's the moment I can explore a certain version of myself. Mm -hmm. But I think it's also this economics, you know, the when can I make enough money to live a life where I maybe don't need to get married or I don't need to have a family or that kind of thing. I think cities represent that. And they also start to enable queer people to find each other and straight people to find queer people. And those kinds of findings are what eventually lead to organizations and institutions and bars, but you need density to produce those things. So it's not like there aren't queer people and trans people and all of these kinds of desires all across America in earlier years, but the way that you think about them and um, experience them is different based on whether you have other people to sort of talk them through or model yourself after. Hugh, thank you so much for coming in. Um, Thank you. This is really fun. uh, The book is out now um, from St. Martin's. You can get it anywhere books exist. Um, (laughs) And uh, it's called When Brooklyn Was Queer. And, uh, you know, reading is fundamental. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. That's so (laughs) cute. Samantha Allen is a senior reporter for The Daily Beast. She's got a new book out this month called Real Queer America, which she wrote after taking a road trip through red states. She chronicles the queer communities and the queer people she meets along the way, many of whom relate to her own life. Samantha, we're so happy to have you here. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Uh, So as I was just saying, um, your book feels incredibly personal. A lot of the communities and people who you include in the book are part of your life and and were part of your life before you started writing it. How did you decide how much of your own life to put in this book? Yeah, you know, I wanted kind of a mix of places I had been to before or lived in for some time, like Utah, Georgia. I lived in Indiana for a summer. But then I also, you know, I didn't want it to be all about me, right? I I wanted to go to some new places that I hadn't been to before that I was really curious about. I think um, most prominent among them, the Rio Grande Valley, part of the country I'd never been uh, familiar with before and, and got to see for the first time while writing this. I love in the intro of your book, you write a sort of like, I, Brian, I believe you use the word salty. It was like a really beautifully, almost confrontational defense of living mm-hmm. in red states as a queer and trans person. Why do you prefer living your life in red states? You know, um, 
it's ironic because I've I've been living in a blue state for the last six months, but it also <laughs> like equips me to speak to what I miss about it. I mean, I love Seattle for its like natural beauty. It's close to uh, to my parents, which is why I wanted to live out there. Um, but in, I I don't feel like fully myself as a queer person in Seattle necessarily. So you know, when I came out, I lived in Atlanta, Georgia. And like in Georgia, you know, I'm I'm a, an openly transgender woman. When you spot another like transgender woman in Georgia, there's kind of this little nod, like, "Hey, I see you. Like, <laughs> sure, sure. You see me." Uh, in Seattle, it's just like I don't know, LGBT people are everywhere, mm-hmm. and and I found in cities like that, you can, you get more kind of clickishness. Oftentimes, you can get some complacency around LGBT issues, um, whereas you know in Atlanta, there's there's sort of this warmth and solidarity and being bonded together by what you face from the state legislature there. So you know in Georgia, every year there's some anti-LGBT bill comes before the state house the entertainment companies that make movies in atlanta say we don't want this bill to happen lgbt people protest it gets shut down there's sort of this endless sense of like we're always kind of on the chopping block which means we have to show up and we have to show up for each other and it's that that sense uh, of kind of solidarity that makes me prefer red state queer life to kind of liberal oasis queer life one thing i really liked uh, about your book was your persistence in problematizing the idea of cities as oases. In fact, you draw a really good distinction, I thought, between what an oasis is and what we think of a utopia as. Can you explain that framing that you that you put in the book? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think, what I see in the book is like when you're in a desert, an oasis can just be a single well of water, um, which, you know, it doesn't have to be amazing. There just has to be something life-sustaining there. Um, so, you know, even in some of the places that I go to in the book that are like little pockets of acceptance, like uh, Bloomington, Indiana, for example, um, you know, people within Bloomington, Indiana can still have very different experiences depending on um, you know their particular identities or, or their background. You know, I'm I'm white, and I I spoke to uh, you know people of color in Bloomington who are like, well, this this place doesn't feel as comfortable for me as it does for you. Mm-hmm. It's still better for me than other parts of South Central Indiana. They would say, but you know, it's it's not it's not perfect. You know, I still see you know Confederate flag stickers or clan memorabilia if you go out far enough. So you know. No place is perfect, but I I think by the same token, you know, we need to realize places like, you know, Brooklyn and Seattle aren't aren't perfect either. You know, you can find reports of anti-LGBT violence in those places, too. And then, you know, like paradises don't exist. There is no place in the U.S. (laughs) that's paradise for LGBT people. Maybe um, Wilton Manors, Florida, where it's paradise (laughs) just because everyone is gay there. Um, But I don't know. I'm sure Wilton Manors has its problems. (laughs) Uh, Most of the places that you describe in your book, I would say, are little blue bubbles in the red states. So like Austin, Houston, uh, Atlanta, Bloomington. What what about the other parts? You know, is this uh, really an accurate representation of queer life in in red states, as it says on the cover of your book? Yeah, you know, I think 
It's always interesting when we look at the electoral map after a presidential election because they shade in the whole state, right? And then when you look at the map of voting patterns broken down by county, the country looks very different. It mm-hmm. looks largely red with pockets of, of blue in the cities. Um, and so I think sometimes we have this kind of guilt by association effect where we dismiss a whole state based on, I don't know, how it gets shaded on those maps or who its uh, electoral votes go to, and in a way that I think overlooks some of those blue pockets. But I mean, you're right. There are deeply conservative, more rural areas. Um, I didn't go to as many of them in the book as I would have liked. I think one of the most rural places I went to was New Hope, Texas, which is uh, about an hour and a half outside of Dallas, uh, where there's a transgender, was uh, recently a transgender mayor, a first transgender mayor in Texas. Um, But I, I think part of what I wanted to say in the book is Look, you know, we're always going to see, or at least for now, we're always going to see LGBT people heading to urban environments for acceptance. But increasingly, you have to travel less and less far to find those pockets. We're seeing places like Salt Lake City um, or St. Louis be a new kind of destination for a young LGBT person looking to get out of the country as opposed to, I don't know, going to New York or San Francisco. Because, of course, those the New Yorks and San Franciscos, which are like the sort of classical like gay migration narrative that we've all kind of been told is the way to do it, like they don't fit everybody. And I think you write in your book really well, like personally, they, they're, they're not attracted to that kind of city life or the, the natural environment. Um, and I think you write really beautifully about what it means to be able to stay closer to home or in a place that that is uh, that that just suits you better. I mean, talk about that a little. Yeah, bit. I mean, most practically, New York City and San Francisco are hugely expensive. Yeah. So if you're a young LGBT person living in Kansas, you know, St. Louis is is a much better place to imagine yourself um, buying a home, uh, that kind of thing. But they're also, I don't know, they're also just kind of. Uh, other concerns, you know, a lot of people from the South prefer kind of the culture and pace of things in the South, this uh, bit of a slower paced life or uh, the food in the South is really good. <laughs> I think the rest of the country caught on to that in the last decade because <laughs> yeah. now Southern food is everywhere and, you know, high dining scenes um, in big cities. Um, but I another big one that you mentioned that I tried to draw out on the book is like nature. People mm-hmm. really care about being situated near mountains and rivers and and that kind of thing. And, um, you know, in, in these kind of megalopolises that kind of bleed out in New York into like, you know, Queens in one direction and New central New Jersey in the yeah. other direction. It's, it's really hard to ha- kind of have that communion with nature and some of the traditional LGBT destinations. Yeah. One thing that I was thinking about in reading your accounts of small towns and then also cities in red states is it almost seems like town versus city might be a more helpful and accurate dichotomy than red state versus blue state. Mm. But I think, um, you know, even in some of these small towns now, we're seeing, you know, these small city councils of like six people pass like LGBT protections Mm. in the middle of, you know, in the middle of nowhere, so to speak. Uh, I I tallied it up recently for something I was working on. Something like 80 cities and counties and states that voted for Trump um, now have, you know, LGBT inclusive local ordinances. And, And so... And, you know, that number is starting to spread beyond, you know, 
the the hubs like Austin, Dallas, Houston. Is there a common thread there? Places. Does it just take one, you know, queer luminary or trans luminary in a town to get people to sort of come around to it? Or is it part of the changing of the national conversation? What do you think it is? I was going to ask if the activism, the style of the activism on the ground in those places looks different from, you know. Yeah. I mean, I think about a place like uh, Provo, Utah, where I went at the start of the trip. Uh, I don't believe they have an LGBT inclusive ordinance there, but a lot of the activism there is taking place within kind of families and like small business owners, um, you know, talking to each other. I think one of it's it's not I don't know, it's not super sexy, but a lot of what I wanted to really capture in the book is like conversation really matters. It really matters in red states. Um, People just having conversations with their families about I'm LGBT, I'm, you know, I have the same hopes, desires and dreams as any other person does. And um, I deserve to be accepted too. I think also small business um, associations have been like really influential in getting a lot of those ordinances passed because it's good for business to uh, be an LGBT friendly business. Um, And people all over the country recognize that not just in in big cities. Yeah, I was kind of thinking about that when you were talking about um, uh, the back door in Bloomington, um, how how the the queer bar itself just seemed more politically defiant. And um, I think the word that somebody uses is activist minded. So it's not necessarily sort of, um, you know, going out on the streets and marching and things like that. But sort of, you know, when people come into conversation with you, um, and they act a certain way, like you're going to get a talking to. Um, yeah, there's like not, an Angela Davis poster yeah, 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 in the yeah, bathroom exactly. or something yeah, like that. Yeah, and I thought that was really cool because you hear a lot about how, especially I feel like in maybe like D.C., you don't necessarily feel like, you know, gay bars are necessarily as um, that sort of activist-minded. Um, you know, they they seem more sort of separate social spaces and they are um, sort of this mixture of politics, education, and like social gathering. Yeah, and you see that at, um, you know, Bloomington uh, Pride as well. I uh, interviewed Janae Cummings, who at the time at least, and I believe she still is the uh, executive director of Bloomington Pride. And at the time she was saying, like, look, we're going to start having, like, workshops at Pride. Mm. You know, we're going to have the fun part, and we'll also have workshops that people can go to if they want to learn um learn more about a topic or that kind of thing. I, I think you you do see that mentality. The back door, by the way, is an amazing bar. Everyone should go there. And, um, you know, there's a lot of it. It feels very radical and activist minded, but it's also a place where you can just like have a great night out. And I think, I don't know, maybe the important distinction is like the people I meet in a place like Bloomington, they they can't afford to forget about the threats that they're facing because they're on the front lines Mm -hmm. of it. Another institution that you mentioned in Bloomington was uh, Rachel's Cafe, which seemed like a really important place to you when you lived there. It was owned and run by a trans woman who uh, was one of the first out older trans women who you really (laughs) encountered in your life, it sounded like. Um, And now that place is closed and you write a little bit about the shifting points on the map of queer experience and how sometimes you just need one or two spaces to get your footing in order for this whole world to open up to you. Um, 
How does that sort of experience differ in a town like Bloomington that might only have a couple places out there versus in a city where you might have more options? Yeah. So, I mean, recommendations and word of mouth become really important in a place with limited options. Um, I'm a former academic as well. And one one of the things that I really like is um, this this theory from queer theory in the 90s called uh, queer world making that's about how queer people kind of find little places in the shadows and little mobile sites of of belonging to kind of piece together something that looks like an alternate universe for queer people. Um, one of the people who wrote the kind of uh, paper on queer world making is named Lauren Berlant. She's a professor at U Chicago. And before I went to Bloomington for the first time, um, you know, I was newly out as transgender. Um, I had to spend a summer in Bloomington doing research. I was going to be living there alone. I, uh, I uh, didn't really know what life was going to look like for me that summer. And I emailed Lauren Berlant and she just said, like, go to the back door. And that was basically (laughs) it. Right. And so I go to the back door like my second night and through the back door, I meet people. I find out about other events and I find about uh, find out about businesses like um, like Rachel's Cafe, which was a very like important place for me where I could feel comfortable being in the middle of Indiana as an openly transgender woman. Um, and I, you know, I don't want to romanticize it, but I also really like that feeling of like, you kind of, I don't know, you kind of have to show up and see where something takes you. Mm. Yeah. Thank you so much, Samantha. I love your book. It's called Real Queer America. Thank you for writing it. Thank you for having me. So this month, we're structuring our advice segment around a series of really good questions we recently got from a listener. We each reached out to someone from a smaller town to respond to Sam Bullard's message, which is this. In my hometown, there's not a single gay bar for maybe 100 miles, so it can be hard to find those spaces to casually and safely meet other queer people. From my experience, this often leads to social media and clubs through schools being some of the best places to find others, but you really have to search for them. It also can be different how we spend time together. For example, you have house parties instead of going to the club, and your apartment becomes the safe space that everyone goes to rather than a public communal space. It can also be difficult to create these open or public spaces because people tend to be more homophobic in rural areas. This tends to make it harder for some people to be more out and proud and connect with others in public spaces. Do other queers in rural areas experience this? Are there ways their communities are working to become more connected? How do people handle the prejudice that often comes with small towns? Uh, What kind of responses did you guys get? I talked to the folks at the Western Montana LGBTQ Community Center in Missoula. They uh, stipulated that Missoula is a pretty progressive bubble in Montana, although, you know, your mileage may vary, they said, depending on your own experiences. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, Andy from the community center said this to me. um, They don't have a gay bar in town, but that they've made up for that because some people in the community decided to start a monthly LGBT night at Imagination Brewing Company. They call it Queers and Beers. (laughs) Um, That seems like something that's replicable for anybody in a small town if there's like one business owner who's queer affirming to have a monthly event or or quarterly or bi-monthly. Andy said that in Missoula, there are other bars that go gay on certain nights. There's one called The Badlander that hosts monthly drag shows. But that also the community center 
is open as a place for people to come and meet others like themselves. It doesn't sound like Sam has a place like that in her town, but there are networking groups that also seem like a good way for people to meet up in a non-alcohol-centered setting. That can even happen in somebody's house if there's a place where, you know, five or more people can meet. Potlucks are a big thing in Missoula, apparently. Holiday parties, fundraisers, these all seem like things that don't need to happen so often that it sort of exhausts the capacity of just the few people who who live there who are queer or trans. But if there are just a couple people or a couple public spaces that you can figure out are affirming, are replicable. Yeah, I talked to a professor in Greenville, South Carolina, which is not a small town, more of a medium-sized town, but still sort of has the... um, we'll say disadvantage, but it's, you know, it's in a deep red state um, in the sort of uh, stereotypes that that brings with it. And so it was interesting because when I was talking to him, he was, he mentioned, you know, not just the fact that he is in, um, you know, the the deep South, but also the function, the, the role that age plays in the difficulties um, for him to like actually like build a queer community. Because it sounds like for him, he actually has challenges very similar to Sam. Um, and so he talks about, you know, even the offerings that you do have, like meetup groups. Um, he's like, they're much smaller than, you know, he will travel to Boston when he visits his brother. And this, um, you know, there, you know, he's like, the the community is like pretty robust. It's really inviting. Um, it's great while he's there, but he was like, they also don't really care for like interlopers. Um, so it's hard to build something when like you keep, you know, you, you don't live there. Um, but then he, he was like, you know, even if you have, um, universities and schools around that will have these LGBTQ groups, you know, they're pretty much closed to non-students. And so he was sort of like, you know, the he's his saving grace is essentially having support, the support of like straight friends and colleagues, just because it, it's, it's hard to find the sort of uh, the queer interaction that he would think is meaningful, um, especially being like a, an older single person in, you know, Greenville, South Carolina. Well, and while we had uh, Samantha Allen, who wrote Real Queer America in the studio, we actually posed this advice question to her as well. And here's what she had to say. It can be really hard to be that far away from um, LGBT safe place or or some form of LGBT culture. You know, a lot of the people that I met while writing my book, they could be far from a city, but they also had, you know, family. And so they kind of felt more kind of settled um, further from a city. One of the things I didn't cover in my book, though, is is the huge influence that the Internet has had on LGBT community building. Um, and I think a lot of folks who kind of don't feel tapped in uh, or connected to other LGBT people, you can still find a lot of community on the Internet. Um, certain platforms uh, like Twitter, I found, can be more toxic than others. But, um, you know, there's still forums, subreddits, that kind of thing. And even though the, the, you know, nearest hub of, uh, of LGBT acceptance might be really far away, if, if you can afford to every few months or something, make a trip there, stay overnight, go somewhere where you can find and be among your people and see if that can rejuvenate you and you can mm. bring some of that energy with you, um, uh, back to your home. 
I I also like your idea of, you know, turning your apartment into a safe place. One of my favorite places I went to while writing Real Queer America was just someone's apartment in, in Texas. And she had kind of opened up her apartment to a rotating cast of, of trans folks who would just come over and play Mario Kart and hang out. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, it sort of replaced the need for for nightlife, even though it was available. Yeah, that's great. All right. Well, that's just about it for the Town & Country edition of Outward. But before we go, we would like to give you our usual updates to the gay agenda. Christina, what do you have for us? I'm going to recommend the documentary Small Town Gay Bar. Ah, love it. (laughs) Yeah, you've seen it. Uh, It came out in 2006. It's about two gay bars in rural Mississippi. They're called Rumors and Crossroads, both extremely strong names for gay establishments. There are some really incredible characters in this documentary. Um, It's very lo-fi, sort of homespun, which I love. It feels very authentic to the people in it in a way that's not making them out to be sort of like saviors or, or, you know, coming in in a voyeuristic way. But these are people who, you know, sometimes risk their lives and livelihoods to keep up these essential spaces in their towns and sometimes regions because there's not always a lot of gay life in those areas or or gay establishments. And it for me, it really drove home how for people in these small towns, not unlike people who live in larger towns or cities, um, the need for communities like this are not, you know, frivolous or optional or like fun add-ons to an already vibrant life. They're vital to people's self-realization. Um, I love it. Everyone should watch it. Small Town Gay Bar. It'll make you want to go to your local gay bar. Uh, I'll definitely check it out. Wonderful. Brandon. Uh, so my gay agenda item is this really, really, really fascinating article uh, from 2015 called The Association of Gay Suburban People. Uh, written by Tim Retzloff. Um, and so essentially what he's doing is cataloging the the rise and activities of this group uh, called the Association of Suburban People um, that formed in the 1970s uh, in, in the suburbs outside of Detroit. Um, and they formed essentially in, um, in response to sting operations by the police that were targeting um, gay men in particular um, in, for engaging in activities in a nearby park. Um, and so even the origin story uh, to me was fascinating where he just talks about how it was five men meeting one night in someone's kitchen and they each put $20 down to go toward a bail fund in case somebody got arrested. Um, and from that point on, he was like, you know, that's when they were creating this uh, social group. Um, and he says that it's actually the first substantial non-religious gay organization to form in metropolitan Detroit since an earlier wave of liberation activism. Um, and I thought it was it's really cool because it, it's born out of defiance, um, you know, even with the name. And they said it was, you know, it's, it's supposed to really highlight um, you're challenging uh, the sexual conformity that exists in the suburbs. Um, and you're also um, drawing attention to um, people's uh, First Amendment right to peaceably assemble. And it's really just a, a really fascinating look at um, like a slice of gayness um, and what it can look like outside of cities. Like, for instance, one of the really interesting parts is uh, somebody started in their backyard the raunchy Western Review, um, which was sort of themed around sort of like the frontier, um, but it was a very sort of uh, camp cross-dressing um, annual tradition. Um, oh, my God. Yeah. And like he he also talks about how they would sort of – it wasn't, you know, 
eventually it sort of branched out beyond uh, people's homes, their backyards, um, and they would go to sort of trusted public spaces, trusted bars. And eventually they would become not just social, but also educational. They would invite speakers to talk about, you know, like, how do you form a gay identity and things like that? How do you go about engaging in gay activism? And there was also the sort of, yeah, so there was that political dimension to it as well. But, you know, like a lot of queer organizations at the time, um, they also talk about the fault lines uh, that eventually sort of ate away at the group, you know, sort of white masculine presenting cis men, um, sort of like being uh, being the ones who were creating the dominant narrative, um, some people not wanting to be as out, um, some people not wanting to be as political. Um, there's also a divide between older people and younger people. But it's 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 just a really, really fascinating look at, um, you know, you don't necessarily need to live in New York uh, to have a sort of fulfilling uh, gay life. So if you haven't read it, I definitely recommend you read it. That sounds fantastic. Um, so mine is more of like an activity, but I <laughs> highly recommend going to a small town pride. Um, if you've never done that, if you've only been to big, bigger city ones, um, going to small town prides is a quick education in what uh, what sort of matters to those communities um, and, and, and how that differs from other places. The most recent one I went to that I really, really loved and actually was on, only there like on accident, which was even better, was <laughs> Hudson, uh, Hudson, New York, which is, um, you know, close to New York, but it's not, mm-hmm. it's far enough away that it has its own own culture. And the future and scene of the queer cultural event of the summer, my wedding. wedding. Which, yeah, <laughs> your wedding, indeed, um, indeed. So, so the pride there was fantastic. It's small, um, you know, the same. I don't know, hundred people. You sort of saw at all the events. Um, the parade is much more about like sort of civic organizations and like cute little like local clubs than it is about um, necessarily like bars or go-go boys or any of that stuff. All that stuff is wonderful, of course, but uh, seeing seeing what the community valued and what was exciting to them in that parade and in the sort of surrounding events was, uh, was really wonderful. And just, it made me immediately feel like I had a grasp on, on what queer life was like in that that area. Um, and so, you know, lots of small towns are having these prides and even in places you wouldn't expect it, like in South Carolina and other, uh, where I'm from and other places, um, it's happening. Um, and they're often, you know, done it with a lot of effort and they need money. And so if you can support that way, that would be good. Um, but attending is awesome too. So, uh, if you can get, get to a local small town pride, uh, I say go for it. Definitely going to put that on my gay agenda. Same. That's our show for today. Please send us your feedback, your topic ideas, your advice questions at outwardpodcast at slate.com or on Facebook and Twitter at Slate Outward. Thank you to Daniel Hewitt, who provided production assistance for this episode. Our producer is Daniel Schrader. June Thomas is the senior managing producer of Slate Podcasts and the small town gay bar we all love to patronize. (laughs) If you like Outward, and we hope you do. Please subscribe in your podcast app, tell your friends about it, and rate and review the show so other people can find it. We'll be back in your feeds next month. Bye, Brandon. Bye, Christina. Ciao, Brian. Ciao.